You're checking out the Nifty Q Show. All right, good morning, good evening, good night. Welcome into the Nifty Q Show. I'm interviewing founders, leaders, and awesome builders in the NFT and blockchain industry. Today, I'm sitting with John Hillis, co-founder and caretaker of Creator Cabins in Cabin Dow, to talk building decentralized cities, organizing DAOs, their first property in Austin, Texas, the future of work, and much more. John, I'm, I'm happy to sit in here with you today. You're, you're an actual builder, like physically building things there in, in near outside Austin, Texas. How are you doing today, my man? That's right. Yeah, I'm doing great. Uh, I, I live out here on site at the cabins. We're about 45 minutes outside of Austin, Texas. And yeah, I just can't imagine a, a better dream job where I get to help uh, build virtual communities and, and also a physical one here. Yeah, I'm excited that you took uh, my my request here. You you posted on Twitter right after I DM'd you. You said people should learn how to DM so that you get a response. Now, break that down for me. What about my message just said, hey, I need to be on this guy's show? Yeah, you know, I think um, I'm always excited to to you know respond to cold DMs. Um, I think that's one of the magical parts about Twitter and the internet more broadly is that um, you know people are just very accessible. If you are willing to provide the right context and help people understand, you know that you're not just copy pasting some random thing to a hundred people, and you're really you know who they are, you know what they're about, you've done your research, you've done your homework, and and you're reaching out with a specific ask. If you make it really easy for people to say yes, then you're going to get a lot more yeses. Absolutely, man. And I'm glad you said yes here. We're going to talk like decentralized cities. It gets my hair tingling a little bit when we're talking decentralized cities in the future of how people will organize. You know, it's kind of like I feel like almost a fetish of people who like are post-apocalyptic post-apocalyptic that we're going to like all get into these Bitcoin citadels and, and do these things. So is that what you mean by building decentralized cities when you have that on the website? You know, it's really not. Uh, I, I, I like. I hear you there, um, and I think there, there's a kernel of truth to that. I think many of us draw inspiration from, uh, you know, great science fiction like like Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash or, um, you know, Diamond Age with this idea of these uh, sort of post nation state structures, and and I think we are headed towards that world. Um, but I wouldn't call myself. Uh, um, you know, an apocalyptic thinker or a, um, a hardcore libertarian or anything like that. I think what um, I'm much more interested in is how we start to take these amazing flourishing online communities and manifest them in the real world. Yeah. The other discussion I kind of wanted to have that we'll make our way into later in the episode is this idea that we're kind of coming out of COVID and kind of getting back into the IRL world and the meat space. And you guys are super positioned to at least push that narrative, right? That we should be less about finding or interacting with our tribe on Discord and more about interacting with our tribe in real life. Is is that kind of the narrative there? Yeah, I think it's a yes and, right? I think that um, if you look at um, the kind of things that, that the internet's good for and the things that the real world is good for, um, they're good for very different things. And I think the, the path forward here, the, the sort of post-COVID world is going to be a hybrid world, but not in the way that people usually talk about hybrid. So when, when people usually talk about hybrid, um, you know, in like some corporate sense, they're talking about like, oh, we're going to do three days a week at home and two days a week in the office and some people on zoom and some people in person that is like the worst of all worlds um and there's another form of hybrid that we're real believers in which is you can live and work anywhere in the world you want 
And, you know, 90, 95% of the time, you have total autonomy and flexibility about your geographic location. Um, and then, you know, maybe five or 10% of the time, you want to get together with people IRL and have the really deep, meaningful connections, the liminal time and space that, um, you know, allows for a creativity and a productivity and, and a focus on big picture and strategy that is not really possible over, you know, an hour long, highly agendaed structured zoom call. Um, and so I, I think like you, you need both. And if you look at the people who figured this out better than anyone, it's online daters. Right. If if you uh, are looking for a life partner, there's probably no more highly motivated group of person than than people looking for life partners to like try to find the right people. And what they do is, you know, now if you look at a chart of how everyone meets, right, it's like online, you know, apps have like gone through the roof. Everything else is falling off a cliff. But you don't stay that way. You like you tap into this incredibly broad limitless um you know pool of of people online you find the right matches you find the right people you find your tribe your community and then you get together irl um and you got to have both in, in order to have really i think fulfilling uh community-based experiences i'm interested in this piece too uh that's on your website where you're talking about communities not needing to be in one place, right? Like cities can be connected, uh, you know, by uh, different variables that maybe we don't think about normally when we're looking at just geography. So uh, I, this is going to be a deep one, man. I was I literally was putting together the question board and I was like, where do I start with this? Where do I take this? But let's start with like the traditional start to a podcast. Who, who are you? Where do you come from? How did you find yourself in, in blockchain? Yeah. Um, you know, I I feel so fortunate to be living a life where um, I never could have predicted how th this would kind of all come together. But there's so many strands of of my life that feel like they've helped bring me to this place, and I think that's true of a lot of people working in Web three. I, I get the sense that you know, for many of us, we didn't choose Web three. Web three uh, chose us, and we we were on these sort of dependent paths. And so for me, um, there's a lot of ways you can trace that back over time, whether that's my my you know earliest um, childhood interests in architecture and in wanting to um, build new forms of uh, like off grid sustainable housing. I was really excited about and interested in earthships as a kid. Um, and you know you you can trace that through to college, where I spent a lot of time um, studying uh, complex adaptive systems and agent based models and you know, strategies for these bottom-up um, uh, ways to overcome collective action problems. And I thought it was just this like weird esoteric corner of political science and economic academia. Um, and, you know, it turned out that that uh, even though I didn't have the words at the time, it was basically DAOs. Um, you know, you, you can trace it to um, my interest in online communities and the time I spent throughout my middle and high school years um, in weird corners of the internet, whether that was early Reddit, uh, where I was like a very active lurker and then, and then member, um, or, you know, uh, dig some of these other ones or, or even weirder, more esoteric things like the, uh, science Olympiad message board, you know, where as a very nerdy middle school kid, I, I spent a lot of time hanging out with other science nerds. And, um, you know, those experiences were, were tremendously formative out of college. The first company I ended up uh, working on was a startup that was intended to be uh, a sort of like 
proto version of a token uh, gated community. It was like a subscription based thing that you had to pay. And there was like a bonding curve, even though, again, I didn't really have the words for that at the time. Turned out to be the total wrong time in like 2013 to build that kind of thing. Nobody wanted that. Everybody was just still on Facebook. Um, but now it's really come back around. And so, you know, I think there are all of these threads. Um, uh, I was was fortunate to have, like many people, you know, my path into crypto uh, is kind of a, a classic uh, story where I had a college roommate who was, you know, buying drugs on Silk Road uh, and showed classic. me Silk Road and Bitcoin. Classic situation for the degens out there. And, um, uh, you know, I... I bought a little bit of Bitcoin um, as soon as I had my first job and, and had a little bit of money. Um, and then, you know, got, got some Ethereum uh, af- right after the, um, uh, you know, initial sort of crowd sale. And a- at the time, I thought the technology was fascinating, um, I, you know, but it was really, it was kind of speculative. There wasn't a lot you could really do. And um, what I think has really changed in the past year uh, or, or maybe a little bit longer is that now there are these incredible use cases for these things and use cases that are not just about making money, which I don't find terribly exciting, um, but are about, uh, you know, building community, building governance structures, building, um, you know, this, this shared culture together. And that's what, what really got me excited about, um, starting to use these tools in new ways. This is such a cool conversation because you had all these DAO like experiences as like a young person, you were almost like training to be where you are now, not even knowing it, which I think is cool because there are a lot of people who are listening to this now who are into NFTs. This is like a primarily NFT based show, but having the conversation about DAOs is important because they're going to be making their way and already are in the NFT space. So how can you kind of bridge someone's understanding of like those web two experiences you had and what that means in a DAO now, you know, like how would you get that analogy across to someone who's new? Yeah. So I have the, uh, uh, you know, the fortune of getting to do this actually with some frequency. Um, uh, one of my, uh, you know, kind of side gigs is, is that I'm, um, an executive in residence at reforge, which is, uh, an online community and and set of courses for web two product people and um, has an incredible group of these web two product leaders that uh, you know I get to be the guy with all the weird web three ideas um, and I've it's led to some really interesting conversations and debates with with people that are very deeply ingrained in the current systems uh, but want to understand and want to learn more and um, you know the the way that I typically talk about it is first of all that you know i think there's basically three primary um primitives of web3 which is defi nfts and DAOs, um and that you can think of those primitives you can think of you know defi as being the money layer nfts as being like the you know kind of culture and, and art layer um and DAOs as being the the governance and organization layer um and i think they're all important i've gravitated pretty heavily to, to DAOs given, you know, my interests and background. Um, but I think typically like one of those three is where somebody's going to plug in. And then, um, you know, I think a lot of people's skepticism comes from the fact that it feels like, you know, it's still this like speculative magic internet money. Um, and what I, why I really try to help people understand is that, um, that's just the tip of the iceberg and, and that, you know, there's so much more below the surface, um, about how these, these tools of self-sovereign 
uh, autonomous ownership of, of digital assets can be used for um, coordination, for governance, for bringing people together. Um, and I think like that's where we're just starting to scratch the surface. And you're doing that in real time. I mean, right before the episode, the viewers at home, you got we weren't live yet, uh, but John took me literally outside and showed me where the he's in the cabin right now that he's talking about building. When you go to Cabin Dow and uh, the the cabin uh, Creator Cabin's website, like he, you are on location building. So take me to that origin story of how you kind of got into Dow's and then how you founded uh, this awesome organization that you're currently leading yeah thank you um so uh the the story here is that um i was very burnt out in web 2 i was leading product teams at instacart uh, was a, a director of product focus on the gig uh you know essentially the gig side of the marketplace the shoppers and um the the people you know shopping on behalf of of customers and i um realized that the gig economy was not going to work out in sort of some of the extremely optimistic ways that that we hoped it would. Um, but there was still a lot of kernel of goodness there in terms of the ability to create um, autonomous, uh, independent earning opportunities online for in a pretty permissionless way for people. Um, and what what I came around to was the idea that. Um, you know, these declining transaction costs were changing the nature of the firm. There's this uh, Nobel Prize winning economics paper from the 70s from a guy named Ronald Coase called The Nature of the Firm. And it's about the fact that companies really only exist because there's transaction costs between people to get stuff done. Um, and so if those transaction costs get lowered by software, um, then, you know, the prediction would be that, that companies won't won't exist <laughs> in the same form at least and um we started seeing this play out in web 2 with the gig economy and i think we're we're continuing to see it play out in web 3 with DAOs. um and the, the process you know from from getting uh from instacart to here was that i was burnt out quit my job and um basically decided to spend all of my time thinking about what um you know the, the sort of concepts of frictionless independent online work would look like in the context of knowledge work because i felt like less commodified labor was you know the path towards creating ownership structures and um and sort of structures of gig work that were were better for the people doing the work um and that turned into the you know sort of creator economy um, started a group called the Creator Co-op, where we started exploring what it looked like to have these decentralized organizational structures for, for these types of workers. Um, and then simultaneously had decided that I was going to kind of like swear off working in tech and, you know, was burnt out and just wanted to go build a cabin in the woods. Um, and so I, I did that, went back to uh, the area where I grew up, uh, you know, and I grew up in Austin, uh, Texas, and, and came out here to the whole country, which had always been a deeply meaningful place for me. Um, you know, just beautiful nature and uh, um, started building a cabin and invited my, you know, buddies from the creator co-op out. And then sitting around a campfire, you know, late one night uh, with that first group out here, we started talking crypto, started talking about these you know, new things called DAOs, the new mirror crowdfunding tool, and how we could could start to use some of these tools to create interesting opportunities to bring independent online creators together and give them a limited time and space to uh, to create. 
And that's how the DAO was born. Yeah, this is a uh, super heady conversation. We made our way down the rabbit hole really quick. But just to TLDR, what you said was basically that, you know, as we grow into the Internet age and this continues, you essentially are talking about that disintermediation of the company. Like I use the taxi services as a great one because people can kind of have that analogy. It's like, let's have Uber instead of taxi services. Let's have all like these disintermediated decentralized systems set up to take the place of that company is kind of what you're getting at just to kind of put a put a bow on it yeah i think so so the right one way to think about this is is sort of an evolution from companies to to gig structures to DAOs. and if you think about the declining transaction costs right if you when, when you um agree to work for a company you have to like sign all sorts of paperwork and have an agreement for what you're going to do. And they give you a salary. Um, and, you know, then in exchange for that, you like have these, you know, structures where you're kind of inside the bubble of this company. And so you can have lower transaction costs for individual interactions. But if the transaction cost goes down, if now, you know, think about an Uber driver opens up the app and can immediately one click accept a unit of work and they know exactly how much they're going to get paid for this specific sort of atomic unit of work with very low transaction costs. That starts to erode the reason that companies exist. And now you get this network of sort of independent agents, operators. But the problem with that is that there's still this, you know, sort of it's like this halfway solution where you still have this centralized thing at the core that owns all the infrastructure and and is controlling it and can cut people off and and this sort of thing. And so DAOs are are sort of a next evolution of this where now particularly in the context of knowledge work and more complicated forms of work that that can't be atomized in this way, um, you know, where you need people to like really uh, work together to coordinate. Um, what DAOs give us is is a method through which that coordination can happen in a, a trustless environment, um, you know, among internet strangers. And so with this move to DAOs, and I definitely want you to break down those details there and go a little bit in depth on the tooling and how this allows people to coordinate efficiently. But before that, just a, t- a lightning question. Spectrum wise, how far can we make it down this decentralized work system? Are you envisioning a future where like there's only three big companies and everything else is just completely, you know, decentralized when it comes to, you know, coordinating around getting stuff done? Yeah, I have no idea. Um, You know, I think a thing about technologies like this is that um, it's very easy to overestimate them on short time horizons and underestimate them on long time horizons. I think there's a a Bill Gates quote about this. Um, And, you know, the, the basic idea is that like, on a one-year time horizon, you know, everybody's going to be like extremely optimistic about what these things can achieve. Um, but actually it happened because it's, it's happening exponentially. And, and we tend to think linearly, we overestimate for the early period of time. But then once, you know, you really hit the, the inflection point on that exponential curve, um, then things happen way faster than, than people expect in maybe like a decade. And so, um, look, companies have been around for a long time. They're pretty well optimized, uh, technology. And so, um, we don't think they all get like immediately displaced overnight. Um, but I do think that over the next decade, we see pretty fundamental changes in um, the way that these, you know, sort of centralized organizations get um, superseded by a new organizational structure that is worse at some things and much better at other things, sort of in a classic, like Clay Christensen 
uh, um, you know, innovators dilemma sense, you, you have like these, these new disruptive technologies, as he would say, which is now like a totally bastardized word, but in the original sense, it means there, there are things that are actually like a lot worse at a lot of things because they're totally unoptimized systems, but they have a couple advantages that if you really lean into those advantages, um, they create, you know, much better, uh, long-term outcomes. And, and I think that's what we're going to see with DAOs. Yeah. And I want to get into that, that piece about tooling and how this allows now that step further, but you, and you guys are going like 18 steps further with this kind of spectrum and saying, we're not just going to decentralize companies and, and make it so like the people interact, you know, in a business sense, uh, in a decentralized way. We want to do this with cities. We we think cities yeah. can can be this in total, uh, which we'll get there. But it, we're still kind of in that DAO piece in that DAO conversation. So how does in that Uber example, how is a DAO? How would a DAO get set up in this example? And then what is the benefit that it provides uh, after disintermediating the company Uber essentially? Yeah, yeah. So we don't. Um First of all, I think we have to caveat everything by saying, you know, it, it's obviously early. We're, we're just seeing like the initial forms of these systems. And so um, we're all still trying to figure this out, right? We need to understand the the principles that make these organizations work effectively um, in a way that, that I don't think people really know how to do yet. And there's actually a lot of good, you know, history to look at here um, that I think we can learn from. And we, we shouldn't pretend like this is some brand new you know, structure that has never existed before. There are elements of it that are new um, and dependent on on new technologies, but there are also elements of it that date back, you know, many thousands of years to um, uh, some of like my my earliest influences about this stuff were um, like Eleanor Ostrom's work on irrigation systems and the emergence of um, you know uh, agriculture in the Dank River valleys uh, of Mesopotamia. Um, you know, through these like decentralized uh, uh, organizations for managing irrigation structures. So there, there's actually a lot of good history here to look at to understand, you know, how, how to do these things effectively. But we need to relearn a lot of this in the context of, of modern tools. Um, and I think why, what, what, why those two examples there? Like you're, you're talking about like agriculture specifically with the irrigation systems and things like that. Were you just drawn to that just from your like love of outdoors and how is that like the the bet? <laughs> Go ahead. That's a good question. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, look, some of this is probably like uh, has some randomness of of like personal path dependence associated with. I've never seen a better example, um, you know, than than sort of Eleanor Ostrom's work on on irrigation systems to describe the the origins and sort of like example over many thousands of years of how these decentralized systems can work. It's still the case today that um, there are irrigation systems that are locally managed in a bottom-up way using these decentralized structures that tend to outperform centralized irrigation uh, and water management structures in, in developing countries in particular. Um, and so I, I think that's one of the best examples. I wrote this like long uh, essay called uh, A Brief History of um, uh, Centralized States and, and Decentralized Cities or something like that. And, um, you know, I actually think you can trace examples like this through all of the major periods of Western civilization um, and, and sort of through the major epics, you know, whether that's sort of the um, early emergence of civilization, uh, the development of Greek city-states, um, you know, the development of medieval towns, um, 
or, or sort of the modern development uh, um, of the United States and, and the origins of the sort of northeastern um, uh, towns that that became the core of of the like revolutionary movement. What you see in all of these examples is um, uh, some new technology, typically a uh, coordination technology. Um, you know whether that's irrigation structures or or um, alphabets or um, you know, writing, printing press, um, these new coordination technologies allow for people to start building decentralized cities. And this was like the big shock to me looking at this history is like, oh, this decentralized city idea, you know, which I thought I helped come up with actually is like a thing that people have been doing for many thousands of years in different contexts. Um, and then, you know, as those cities start to proliferate using these new coordination technologies, they start running into scaling problems. They federate eventually some like more efficient centralized structure comes along and, ta and, and topples them. And then the centralized structure ends up, you know, kind of like overgrowing and falling apart. Um, and, and I think it, it's certainly a lot of the, you know, late stage capitalism and late stage democracy, um, you know, memes really rhyme with the uh, degree to which these centralized institutions in the past have fallen apart and, and new coordination technologies sort of always tend to emerge to, to allow this next phase of decentralized institution building. Um, I think that's that's what we're dealing with right now. I don't want to get like too pie in the sky, too philosophical, but yeah. is that do you see like crypto and blockchain almost in that timeline of like you see that scale up of that fatness of how can I even say this that fat stage of capitalism uh, and the reaction being blockchain, the reaction being DAOs, the reaction being people are going more back into tribes if even if that tribe yep. is on the internet. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think, um, you know, I don't know why these new coordination technologies always uh, seem to emerge in the moments where they're most needed, where the centralized structures are failing. Um, but it does seem to happen consistently across history. And, you know, I think it's it's a combination of the Internet um, and, and blockchains. And, um, you know, these are all new coordination and communication technologies that are unlocking the ability for us to return to some of these bottom up decentralized routes. That's that's that was just a blast right there. That combo right there was a blast. Hopefully you guys at home are having a good time. Guys, we are on YouTube right now. Drop some questions in the chat. I see some questions there from the people who are live viewing. We're also on Spotify and Apple podcast after the fact. So big shout out to you guys listening uh, on audio. So, John, break down what a decentralized city means to you, like a definition. You you did that. You, you mentioned it a couple of times saying that these actually existed you know, early in, in the millennia and things like this. So break down a decentralized city the way you see it. And then let's talk about founding creator cabins and what you guys are doing. Sure. So, um, you know, I think the easiest way to, to think about a decentralized city is that cities are built around the dominant technology of the era. And uh, for the last century or so, you know, most of the cities that we know and live in today were built around cars. And cars are so prevalent uh, in the structure of cities. And I think that cities in the next century will be built around the new do dominant technologies of the era, the internet and, and blockchains. And uh, what if you think about you know, this sort of crucial um, uh, thing that makes the internet different from previous city-dominating technologies is that the internet is not bound to geography. It's not all in one place. And so I think the... Uh, big idea here, um, you know, that that uh, hopefully 
um, decentralized cities help unlock for people is the idea that at the core, cities are really about shared culture, shared economy, shared governance structures, and they don't actually all have to be in the same place. And so a decentralized city is a structure through which you can have many geographic locations, these independent nodes or neighborhoods in a network um, that can all have their own local um, you know, culture and, and governance and economic models, uh, but can also be a part of this larger mesh network um, of locations all over the world where there's a shared sense of culture and a shared sense of governance and, and values and community and economy across these locations. And as an individual, you could live entirely in one of these networks where um, you know you you can travel around and be anywhere in the world you want and still feel like you're at home in in your city. I, I don't know where to go from there. I have like 15 different questions. I mean, when you're talking about coordinating between cities, so you're saying a decentralized city. So, you know, I'm always looking at it in, in when it comes to history from like the anthropological perspective of like, we're still kind of monkeys. We still have that in our brain. How does someone feel connected or doesn't form their own kind of group where they are geographically and still feel connected to these this decentralized city you're talking about do you guys take that into consideration yeah i think this is the magic of the internet right like i uh, i think many of us are currently feeling like we've been able to find deeper connections in the vast group of humans on the internet and find our little corner right where where we can find our tribe um and that that those connections and and that culture that shared the shared memes the shared understanding um, is, you know, in many ways, just as, as deep as, or deeper than connections that, uh, we can make in, in our local neighborhood and, you know, sort of returning to the previous part of the conversation about, about remote work and, um, when it makes sense to be IRL and when it makes sense to be, to be virtual, I think, you know, it's all about, um, people sort of coming together and building these initial, um, shared cultures online, but then wanting to get together with those people IRL, where you can have the the deep bandwidth um, and the you know the liminal time and space of of being uh, physically present with each other, um, and you know I, I think that is uh, what people ultimately want for like a full sense of fulfillment that you're not going to get over a Zoom call. Um, so you know how what what this looks like um, in practice is that I think every community ends up having its own vibe. Right, its own sort of culture, its own um, like local autonomous governance and and organizational structures, but that there's also a shared sense of culture, a shared sense of memes and values and economy, you know, across nodes in the network. Um, and so, one one like very tangible example of of how this could work. Um, I'm holding up my cabin passport, uh, which is a card with a chip embedded in it. Um, this chip holds a, a public-private key pair, so it's, it's a wallet, and so it can hold, you know, NFT visas on this passport that allow you to travel around the network. And you know, in the future, perhaps it unlocks doors. It, um, you know, can be can be ver can be verified as like uh, uh, meaning that you're a member of different nodes or or different sort of tribes within the network. 
um, and can be a way for people to both feel very locally connected to the place that they're in and also feel like they're a part of this broad global community. Yeah, and it lets you in the Citadel, right? It gets you in as a, yeah, as a exactly. passport. Uh, I, I want to get into what you guys are doing right now on that that 28-acre uh, piece of plot that you're sitting on currently that you guys are building on. I, I looked at some of the pictures on Twitter as I was kind of scrolling, and it was really cool to see you guys IRL just building instead of kind of philosophizing on this is what's on our roadmap, right? You guys are actually doing this in practice. Before I get there, and I feel like I'm doing this a lot on this episode, you mentioned society's building around the biggest technology of the era and the, and the cars were, were, you know, really this, this technological piece that we've been building around. I feel like nothing says that more than like sports stadiums. You see sports stadiums nowadays. Those could be like the, the, the structure around a sports stadium or like the environment should be really awesome. But what you see is just miles of cars. You see just parking lots and that, you know, from an archaeological perspective uh, or an architecture perspective perspective there, do you, do you feel like we'll get to the point one day where we'll go back to actually building awesome cities or are we just going to have parking lots for, ten yeah. years, for like hundreds of years here? <laughs> No, we're going to get rid of the parking lots. You're, you're exactly right. That's a perfect example. And you walk through um, a city, right? So even in Austin, um, I, I went you know, back to my parents' house recently and was driving down their street and realized after living out here where everything is very human scale, where we have three foot wide trails, you know, connecting houses together and all the space is usable by humans and surrounded by nature. Um, and then you go back to a city and you drive down a street and you're just like, oh my God, there's all the, the houses are like really far away from each other. Actually, there's all this space in between for cars to drive and cars to park and cars to park in, in parking, you know, driveways and parking lots. It's just like, it's insane. If you, um, there's a, a member of our core team, uh, named Phil Levin, who started a bunch of incredible co-living communities in the Bay area. Um, and, and you know, was on the, the founding team at cul-de-sac, which is trying to build this car free city in Arizona. And, um, you know, what Phil really realized is that um, if we want to build high density housing, you know, all you have to do is get rid of cars. You don't have to build crazy skyscrapers to, to get high density housing because cars and the space that cars operate in and take up and park in is like two thirds of cities. And so if you just get rid of that um, and replace that with, with stuff that is at, at a human scale, um, and, you know, uh, um, additional housing and, and additional amenities for people and parks and these sorts of things. There's just a tremendous amount of wasted space. Um, so, so, yeah, I think that, that uh, in the next century, we're going to see a very different relationship between our built environment and cars. That, that was a great breakdown. I appreciate your, you indulging me on, on that topic there. It's cool to see the Twitter profiles, like the architecture Twitter profiles that have like top down shots of like old and old cities that still exist in Europe yes. where they're like, Oh my God, that's like super intricate and awesome. And then you see like grids for the U S <laughs> yep. Yep. Or there's even some similar pictures I've seen where people will overlay a single highway interchange, you know, like the big roundabouts that you have to get on to go on highways. They'll take like one of those and then they'll take like Venice, you know, and they'll overlay like a chunk of Venice on a single highway overpass. It's like, you can fit the the kind of main um, walkable area of a lot of these old European cities in the space that it takes just to have a freaking highway interchange. That is amazing. Yeah, 
I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole. So yeah, yeah, we're yeah. going to stay on creator cabins. Tell me what you're building out there in Austin, Texas, man. Like show, like from the ground up, uh, from the start, like let's, let's hear that origin story of, and where you guys are at today with, with this plot of land. Sure. So like, like I mentioned, you know, I was kind of burnt out on, on my web two job. Um, wanted to just ride off into the sunset, get away from it all and go, go build a cabin in the woods, and you know, live out in nature with, with my wife. Um, and, uh, we succeeded at the first part of that. We, we built the cabin in the woods we failed terribly at the <laughs> getting away from it all. Uh, but in, in the most sort of beautiful possible way where, where there's this incredible community, um, uh, out here now. And, um, you know, so, so basically what happened is we moved out here. Um, you know, we started building a, a house and, um, you know, I had a couple hundred Twitter followers and realized that like, if I really wanted, uh, to bring this vision to life, I, I needed to just start like building in public really <laughs> aggressively. Um, and so literally, you know, right after I moved out here, one of the first things I did was just tweet out like, Hey, I'm just going to start building stuff. Like, what should I build? You know, and, uh, have like a Twitter poll or something. And people were like, build a fire pit. Um, and I was like, okay, cool. Should I, what should I use? Like, should I, I was wandering around home Depot, literally like tweeting, like what materials, you know, and people are like, use local rocks. So the first thing I did is, is literally just dug a bunch of rocks out of the side of, of one of the Hills and built this lovely, you know, fire pit. Um, and, and, uh, I just kept building things, right. It was like, okay, what should we do next? How about a yoga deck? Um, you know, and then it was like, okay, we're, we're working on this prefabricated shipping container home, spent a whole lot of time thinking about how to build it and design it specifically for this use case of independent online creators. Um, you know, and it ended up building this co-living structure with this big common living area and these private bedroom suites with, with desks and private bathrooms so that it would be sort of a perfect fit for groups of, of people to come together and, you know, get to know each other in, in a co-living environment. Realized that, like, there was no way this was going to work if we didn't have really good internet. Went to great lengths to build, like, a 70-foot internet tower, you know, that's beaming in 200 megabits a second from over towards Austin to make sure that, you know, we had... Uh, great bandwidth out here, built all the infrastructure out, um, you know, and and then uh, through the process of building in public, um, just started uh, uh, attracting like-minded people who were really excited about this. And I think I really buy into the the theory that, um, you know, the, the internet is great, software is great. That's my, my background is in software product development. But ultimately, um, we need to get better at actually building real things in the real world again. Um, and, you know, if, if we can do that in a, a kind of community led way, um, then I think that that it helps us actually build towards the, the future that we want to live. Yeah. So you have a community there that is building IRL. I'm sure there are also people in your community that aren't you know, there uh, and aren't ever maybe going to go and see the actual physical place, but they're contributing, you know, from, you know, Web3 and, and from the Internet. How do you continuously like get more people to found, is the idea to like found this in, you know, Maine and in Oregon? And how, how do you go about that process of maybe bringing people both to your location and to found different nodes in other areas? Absolutely. Yeah, that's the goal. That's exactly it. And I think that um, we have this this wonderful saying in in cabin that the Dow provides and uh, one of the beautiful things about DAOs and about internet communities is the way in which if you put out the bat signal, you know, if you, if you put out the big, exciting vision of the future that people want to be a part of, 
the right people show up to help build that. And that includes people who want to build stuff, you know, on site here. That includes people who want to start their own nodes, people who already have, um, you know, their own cabin in the woods and maybe their own uh, sort of creator um, community built around that who are a perfect fit to plug into the network. And so um, one of the things that, you know, we, we are constantly doing is on the lookout for other viable line groups that uh, want to do this thing. And that includes you know, everything from a co-living community that owns a property in Big Sur to a couple that has been building their own creator retreat for the past nearly you know decade in the eastern sierra is um a group that is currently trying to buy a big property in colorado um you know a, a, a very crypto native uh person who lives in costa rica and is is building out a node there um you know people that that were interested in buying a castle in lisbon um and all of these people just you know show up and, and come together and we can serve as as sort of a shelling point for helping them understand what it actually takes to build something like this um, and you know, help any way we can to enable them to to build their own notes. I feel like in twenty years that there's not going to be this stigma. Uh, but right now, what do you tell somebody that thinks this is like hippie nation uh, <laughs> or like a cult? Yeah, because I'm sure there are people out there right now listening. They're like, ah, these are this is not going to. We've seen this right. in the '60s yep. where people are trying to build their own areas, uh, and it, maybe it did or it didn't work. I didn't follow. I wasn't alive back then. But what do you tell these people? Yeah, mostly. <laughs> yeah, mostly it didn't work. Yeah, totally. You know, it's a great book. Like, uh, you know, I don't know if you or anyone listening has seen uh, the Netflix show uh, Wild Wild Country. Um, it's like a great example of how this goes horribly wrong. Um, and I think we have to be really um, humble. We have to have a lot of humility about the fact that, you know, we're, we're certainly not the first people to try to build these sort of intentional communities. And the vast majority of them, um, you know, either stay very small and, and local or um, grow in these like really unhealthy, typically very centralized um, ways that, that end up blowing up in, in everyone's face. And so um, I think we are we are aware of that. And the way, you know, what, what I think is necessary to avoid that outcome is to be very intentional about the values of decentralization and um, you know the, the sort of values of our community that we're we're bringing to this, and treating this like like the the most important thing I think I can do, um, it, you know, is basically figure out how to kill myself off, <laughs> you know, because like the the last thing that a community like this needs is founders who end up in these like very centralized roles where where they have a tremendous amount of power that they're exerting over the community and. Um, uh, I think the structure of decentralized organizations and the values of DAOs are set up in a way that can provide us a different set of outcomes because they they don't have this sort of like corrupting power mentality, ideally, that, that some of these organizations that have failed have had in the past. This is a cool talk. The, you have such a holistic view on kind of growing organizations. Where did these organizations in the 60s, 70s go wrong, essentially? I think you mentioned on some of those, like creating one centralized figure that was almost like a god, essentially, and it became a cult, right? But uh, how did, where, where, where did they go wrong? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's exactly it. Like a, a literal cult of personality, right, is the most common failure mode of these things. Um, uh, wild wild country is an incredibly informative example you have literally like a guru type figure you know who ends up like driving around fancy cars and like then i'm i won't spoil the story go watch the netflix series but like turns into some really 
messed up stuff um you know because that power corrupts and uh i i think that's like a, a pretty common failure mode here um there are other failure modes right there's people who like want to create these sort of like you said hippie sort of idealistic communes um that tends to also fail because like these communal structures are, are not the path forward um so those are kind of the two sides of the spectrum either like over centralization or over decentralization and i think what DAOs, you know both of course physical DAOs like like us and also just DAOs in general are going to have to navigate over the next decade is developing the organizational structures that are hierarchical that have the right um types of of leadership roles and sort of localized um nodes of of people that can operate autonomously and do things and and you know power structures that um are are good for the long-term you know nature of, of the community's survival that avoid these sort of two extremes that we've seen fail hmm. I, I i i'm again getting stuck on where i want to take this conversation but dow ownership is is another piece that i really want to touch on you mentioned you know we're, we're talking about kind of community building and and ownership within that is super important. A lot of these DAOs have tokens, so that's kind of a thing I want to throw at you. Is there like a, a going to be an ERC twenty token that's associated with this project, and is there an ability to you know buy it on Uniswap and figure out you know how that all kind of works out? How do you kind of look at you know tokens within your DAO setup and in, in this kind of building of a decentralized city? Yeah, so we actually had a token before we had a DAO. <laughs> um, we originally, you know, started out with this idea of crowdfunding creator residencies at the cabin, which we did via an ERC twenty called Cabin. Uh, the point of which was so that we we could have a governance mechanism for the contributors to the crowdfund to vote on which residents could come out to the cabins. And the intent was not to make a DAO or or really to make like. Uh, um, you know, a token with like economic value so much as a governance structure uh, for a community. And it has now evolved into, um, you know, a sort of new version of the token that is listed on Uniswap so that new people can join the community. Um, uh, it also is how we pay out bounties within the DAO, um, you know, for people who want to want to contribute and get involved um, so that they can have, a, um, you know, a stake in in what we're building. Um, and so it, it's been pretty magical to watch the seed of, you know, this like governance token for a residency program evolve into, uh, this economy of, of the DAO. How do you deal with it becoming, uh, maybe not, how do, how do I explain this? Uh, maybe the hurdle becomes too big or the barrier to entry becomes too large when a token maybe gets absorbently priced where you kind of set an entry price of like, Hey, you can enter if, it, yeah, if you have one token and maybe that's 10 cents one day and maybe in a year that's, you know, a thousand dollars and you want to be open to everybody. How do you look at that? from a you know economical perspective yeah it's a great question i think we um first and foremost like one of the things we really value as a community is being accessible and um you know relatively permissionless in terms of membership so um we the, the threshold is one one token right to join our community to get in the discord to to be able to vote um and we want to keep that barrier to entry really low um and we also want to make sure that that's something that we can keep doing on an ongoing basis so one of the kind of like tokenomics hot takes that we have as a dao um is that we have an inflationary token we have a token that we specially designed so that the dao can can print more of it with the idea that um, you know what we very intentionally want to essentially devalue 
past contributors who are not, you know, currently continuing to contribute and and create space for new people to be able to come in, you know, in a really accessible way. Mm, that's a that's a great point there kind of devaluing people who kind of fall off right because that's another point of you know having a city i think you mentioned wild wild west uh country or, or wild wild country a lot of that happened when they they got to a certain point where people weren't contributing to the system and they were kind of leeching off what everybody else was building which is a whole nother you know community building problem you guys are going to have to deal with uh as as you scale so Tell me like what the roadmap is here for the Texas plot you guys got. Like what what are you guys doing next with both Cabin Dow and uh, the plot that you're currently sitting on? Yeah, so um, we got together as a core team at the end of, of 21 and you know put together our 2022 roadmap. Uh, it was a sort of perfect example of like dog fooding our own product and the value of of coming together IRL for these like deep strategic conversations with the core team. Um, and what we came to was that 2022 for us is all about building an embassy for DAOs. We think that the most valuable thing we can do is bring together groups of people with shared context into this multiplayer mode. Um, and the way that we do that is, is by running DAO operator residencies. We have a group of DAO leaders um, and operators from across the ecosystem that are out here right now for one of our residency programs. And we bring in facilitated sessions and guest speakers and um, you know, try to create really um, deep opportunities for, for connections across the ecosystem. Um, we also offer retreats for DAOs. So if you have a core team that wants to come out and you know, have your own sort of IRL time together uh, with your remote team, you can do that. Um, and then we also do build weeks. So, um, you know, we literally have groups of people from the DAO come out and build physical things. A couple of weeks ago, uh, we had a group from the DAO out here that built a big stone patio and fire pit and pergola structure um, in just a couple of days. And, and I think we really want to push the ball forward on what DAOs can physically build together. And that was done in a decentralized way, led by a 22-year-old Canadian architecture student, you know, named Charlie, who ran that whole project out here. Um, so that's what we're doing at, at Node Zero here in the Hill Country. And then we're also starting to expand other nodes. So we've identified um, you know, a couple of really vibe-aligned groups who uh, I mentioned some of earlier who have similar properties and operations going on. And we want to be really intentional about onboarding um, people who are, are going to be great ads to the community and just slowly start to expand the, the network. How do you continue to scale and have the coordination piece and also kill yourself off? <laughs> because it, as, yeah. you, as you grow, yeah. right, as you grow, yeah. you're going to need to be able to say, hey, like we have to do this together. Or, I mean, technically they could build their own. They could build Cabin Dow too, you know? So how do you, how do you hold on to that um, like piece as you guys scale to like 30 and 40 different node locations? Right. Yeah, it's important. It's a huge question. Um, you know, I think like I try to find ways to kill myself off in, in little uh, ways every day. Right. Like I um, try to hand off responsibilities to other people within the DAOs, decentralize the leadership of the organization. Um, you know, a great example of this is the build week I was just mentioning. Charlie, you know, 22 year old architecture student came out here. I had just gotten back from East Denver, had COVID that week, as did my co founder, Zach. And so we could not really help lead the project. And Charlie brought out this group of people from across the DAO, and they were totally autonomous in their creation of, of this amazing structure on the property. Um, and I think had a tremendous time together too, uh, building the community. And it was so beautiful to see that 
you know, we, I'm not needed for that. Like the, the community can do that on its own. That's, that's amazing, man. I, I really like what you guys are kind of leaning into, which is bringing together people who maybe need some help with their DAO, mm. right? They like come in and, and have your team kind of sit down. It's almost like an incubator of sorts. Like I could see an incubator in your guys' future if that's yeah. not already uh, in the works. Uh, quick shout out to, to Seed Club. Uh, I really like what they're doing uh, from their kind of standpoint. Do you? So what is the application here? If I've got a DAO team and I'm looking to, you know, come out to Austin. Sounds like a great time. Is there a absorbent cost to this? Do you guys cover that? Or how does this all work if I'm interested in kind of participating? Yeah. So if you're if you're a DAO team that wants to come out here for a retreat, um, you can email retreats at creatorcabins.com. And, um, you know, we, we do have uh, a fee for coming out. Um, I, I believe the current fee is one ETH for a week with, um, you know, to bring, bring your group out and, and use the property and the resources available. Um, and we also have the DAO operator residencies. If you're, you know, a core contributor or a leader within a DAO and, and you want to get plugged into that, we have an, an application uh, that you can find at creators.mirror.xyz. Um, we also have ways to get involved with the DAO, whether you're somebody who wants to come build physical things on the property or, um, you know, write uh, and, and do research and, and uh, create content about how to DAO. Our media guild is a great fit. If you're a product person or an engineer, you know, we're, we're building these uh, passports and the, these other ways that we're, we're both using products internally and then also creating tools for other DAOs. And so, um, you know, we, we have a home for, for anybody that uh, is excited about this solar punk future that, that we're trying to build. So do you say solar punk? Yeah. Love it, man. What break that down? What's solar, that solar punk terminology. The first time I heard it. Yeah. Um, I, I do have to wrap up here in a minute, but I, I, this is a good place to end. So, you know, cyberpunk is the, um, kind of terminology for the Neil Stevenson style sci-fi future where, where you kind of have like, um, this disintegration of, of like, um, the, the kind of current institutional structures and, and some replacements for it. And solar punk says, Hey, there's actually like a brighter version of this future. There's an optimistic version of this future where we use these new coordination tools available to us to overcome collective action problems, to solve climate change, to build these new IRL communities that are deeply integrated with nature that, that we want to live in. Um, and that's, that's the escape hatch. That's, uh, that's where we're headed and, and what we're trying to build. Dude, I love that, man. What a, what a great term. I'll be using that more and more. John Hill is here caretaker of cabin dow of creator cabins i uh, definitely want to get out to austin man uh, i'm a big cowboy fan so i travel to dallas all the time but i need to get to austin uh here here relatively shortly thank you so much for coming on today any last words uh for the viewers or listeners out there as we sign off here no this was a really wonderful conversation appreciate you having uh me on and and yeah anybody who's who's interested in these ideas come hang out uh, in our discord, you can check us out on Twitter at creator cabins. And, uh, we, we'd love to talk with you more about it and see how we can help you, uh, you know, realize your, your part of this future. We're all excited about building amazing stuff. All right. Solar punks, you guys get out of here. This was the nifty Q show. I will see you guys hopefully tomorrow. Uh, but we are here every Wednesday, Thursday, uh, for podcasts with awesome people like John. So John, thanks again, man. I hope to see you soon. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. Talk to you soon.